Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves and baseball talk, straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, and we'll close it out 2022, counting down the days to spring training, pitchers and catchers reporting in about a month and a half, and of course, the wheeling and dealing is not done across all of Major League Baseball. And in fact, the wheeling and dealing was not done for the Atlanta Braves as they sign another young player to an extension to continue to lock up the core of this team for the rest of this decade. Catcher Sean Murphy and the Braves agreeing late Tuesday night to a six-year deal with a seventh-year option that could keep him in a Braves uniform through the year 2029. We got a lot to talk about when it comes to that and the ramifications of the Sean Murphy trade when it comes to the luxury tax for the Braves as they have now crossed that first threshold, something that a lot of people spent most of the winter wondering about. Would that keep the Braves from making one more big move? The answer, of course, is no. Could there be more big moves around the corner? We're all going to find out, and we're going to talk about it all right here on From the Diamond as I'm joined by Corey McCartney in just a moment. I want to remind you, as always, make sure to subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. That's G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can follow Corey at Corey J. McCartney on Twitter as well. You can find the show on Instagram at From the Diamond, on Twitter at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. And you can also like the show on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond. Well, Corey, we have gotten on the other side of the Christmas holiday. We're counting down the days to 2023. It's right around the corner, which, of course, means that pitchers and catchers are going to be reporting in six or seven weeks. Not very long from now, we do know that, and we do know that the Braves were busy over the course of the offseason trying to add some pieces. And one of their brand-new pieces, one of the catchers that will be reporting a little bit before maybe some of the rest of the club, is going to be around for an awfully long time. As I think you said on Battery Power TV a little bit earlier, the Braves have done it again. They've locked in another piece of their core, and this time it's the recently acquired Sean Murphy. The catcher came over from Oakland. He was under control for three years. Now he's going to be under control for six years and $73 million with an option on that contract as well. And it comes just a couple of weeks after that trade that brought Murphy over from the A's. Now, I'm not surprised. In fact, I rather expected this move and said as much when we were talking about this a little bit earlier. He was the ideal candidate, the next candidate, if you will, to sign an extension with the Braves. But still, this deal is yet another important piece of the puzzle and the latest investment in the future and the long-term contention and that window that the Braves have set up for this club moving into the rest of the 2020s. I found it interesting during our conversation that everyone got to have with him and uh, GM Alex Anthopoulos earlier when he was asked about not waiting until maybe even part of the season was over with before coming to an agreement like this. So think about the fact that you had Matt Olson reach his deal, uh, extension the same day, basically, that he arrived at the Braves facility. Yeah, Sean Murphy hasn't stepped foot, as far as I'm aware, on any Braves soil 
and he's already signed to an extension. So it's just, it's, it's pretty incredible. One, that they keep getting these extensions, but two, that they were able to do this one before he even put on a Braves uniform. It's definitely impressive. And look, you and I have talked a little bit about Sean Murphy and what he brings to this club and, and the Braves going out and getting a premium catcher that they can have behind the plate that they knew they're going to have for multiple years. But now, you can essentially double the amount of time that the Braves could have Sean Murphy in an Atlanta uniform because he signed to a six-year deal. Those three years of club control, that was enticing. Signing him to an extension, I can understand why the club wants to do that, and it just fits with everything else they've been doing, whether that was the Matt Olson trade, whether it's the Austin Riley extension, the Spencer Strider, Michael Harris, going down the list, all the way back to Ronald Acuna Jr. and Ozzie Albies when this whole thing began as far as those extensions are concerned. And then you start to look at the group that the Braves have together through the rest of this decade, and as I said, into the 2030s, Austin Riley through 2033, Michael Harris the second through 2032. You got Matt Olson through 2030. You throw Sean Murphy 2029, Spencer Strider in 2029, Ronald Acuna Jr. 2028, Ozzy Albies 2027, and then you can throw in a few more guys that are under club control for the next two to three to four years in the likes of Max Free, Kyle Wright, Vaughn Grissom, those kinds of guys. Maybe a couple of three more years of Mike Soroka. We'll see how that whole thing plays out. But uh, Corey, as you look at what the Braves have constructed here, and you look across all of baseball it's not strange to see young players getting extensions very early in their career bypassing those first few years of club control bypassing arbitration buying out a couple of free agent years but nobody's doing it to the extent and the level that the Braves have done it and it's impressive to see what they have collected and and put together and that can play together for a very long time which of course means quite a few things when it comes to continuity not the least of which is having a winning ball club. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this many times, the fact that as these deals have gone along, everyone wants to point out to these players leaving money on the table mm-hmm. and almost as if, you know, they're being, I don't want to say forced to sign these deals, but that there's right. that there that there's some outside influence that's getting them, you know, to to uh, want to be a part of this for the long term and and you know, and not, you know, push this for the maximum amount of money that they can get. I you know, I thought it was interesting when Anthopolis talked about continuity and stability and I think that's not only, you know, what's happening for the team here and knowing that they have all these guys in place. But I think there is an also the other side of it. That that's exactly what the players are getting, right? They're getting the continuity of knowing they're going to be on a contending team for a long period of time. They're not going to be worried from one year to the next. What's the makeup of that team going to be around with uh, mm-hmm. around me as I take the field for that upcoming season. So I think there's just all those other variables for it. They've created this culture and I think a lot of it goes back to those early uh, guys that they were able to get. And I'm not saying that Ronald Cunha Jr. and Ozzie Albee's deals were the reason that you know you have Sean Murphy having this deal that we're talking about now. But I think it's a big reason that they've been able to do that because it's just set this precedent along the way that these guys are all willing to come aboard and you know and be in the in Atlanta for the long term uh, with the intention of winning. Yeah, it really is. And let me lay out something that I feel is important to look at when you think about the team doing extensions versus all the free agent spending that we're seeing. Now, the the guys that play for the six years for their club and get to free agency, they're going to have an entirely different ball game, any and all pun intended, in terms of what kind of negotiation they're going to get, in terms of what kind of leverage they have. And of course, when you hit the open market, you're able to drum up interest outside of the club that you're currently with or the club that you are contracted to for the first six years of your big league career. So the Braves signing Michael Harris, Spencer Strider, Sean Murphy, Austin Riley, whoever it may be, Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzy Albies back in the day, Matt Olson after his trade, 
all of those. These are different than free agent deals, quite obviously, and I think everybody has seen that. But in the case of, say, Harrison Strider, even Ronald Acuna Jr. back, it's signing an extension coming off his rookie season with essentially 120 games under his belt as a big leaguer, you're going to have three more years of club control where you're basically making the league minimum or close to it. Then you get into the arbitration process where you incrementally and very slowly, mind you, start to make a couple, three, four, five million dollars, seven million dollars. Maybe you get up to that, you know, 15 to 20 million dollars in your final year of arbitration just based on what it has looked like in the past. That's not the kind of payday that we're talking about here. And in order to guarantee yourself the first contract, that first money, you know, that's invested in you by this club, you forego a couple of those free agent years in order to lock that in and give yourself the opportunity to go out, hopefully in the prime of your career, say just in the case of Ronald Acuna Jr., and go out and get maybe an even bigger contract, whether it's with the Braves or somebody else. That's still very much out there on the table. But in the meantime, whether it's Acuna, Michael Harris, Spencer Strider, most recently Sean Murphy, whoever it is, they've had the opportunity to go ahead and get set up financially over the course of their career, not worry about arbitration, get incremental or, or, or in some cases very nice bumps over what would have been perhaps a league minimum salary for two to three years and set themselves up financially moving forward into the future. And there is a certain amount of risk in that investment for the Braves because there is no guarantee that every one of these contracts is going to work out, that these players aren't going to get hurt, that they're going to you know, be able to perform. Now, would every single club that's looking on the outside of this think, oh, well, yeah, these guys look like sure things. They look like slam dunks. Well, yes, and that's why the club is enticed to give them these contracts to begin with. But there is, I think, a certain amount of risk in this partnership, but both sides have deemed it what's best for them, best for business, whatever you want to call it and I think that that's why you see that now if another club wants to go out and give a 300 million dollar contract to a guy who's one or two years into his career they can certainly do that and that's certainly a great thing for the player but that's not necessarily what the Braves have been doing here in their model of not they're not trying to give out a whole bunch of 10 to 12 year contracts on every single one of these extensions sometimes it's just a function of not having to go revisit the arbitration case over and over and over again and setting up the player with a little bit more money on the front end of that six years under club control so I felt like it was important to throw all of that out there because it is the difference between signing these extensions and signing free agent contracts once you get to that point it's a whole different animal, a whole different ballgame. But we got to hear from Alex Anthopoulos talking about this, the extension strategy and how he views this and why it has become a really big piece of how the Braves are building their club. Yeah, I mean, look, there's risk to, to this, right? So, I mean, you can look at our own team. Uh, we've had elite young players get hurt at the same time, right? So Mike Soroka was right there in the Cyan conversation. Unfortunate thing that happened to him. Um, obviously Acuna. Right. Just a dynamic, young, exciting superstar player, you know, or guys have down years. So there's risk to this. There's no doubt about it when you lock yourself into this. Um, and I think, you know, that's the trade off. Right. I mean, you're you're guaranteeing you're committing. But look, we do like the fact that guys can just worry about going out and playing. They don't have to worry about making certain salary, get certain statistics and so on, and that they know that they're going to be here. So there's a few components. One, the fan base can buy a jersey and feel pretty good about it. That's not the reason you do it, but certainly a nice thing to add. There's continuity and stability for the organization, for the lineup, across the board. I know the word culture has been used a lot. I don't necessarily love the word, but I think you know the more continuity we have in the room, those are the guys that set the tone. So, And like you mentioned, it's a good place to play in a competitive team. So by all these guys staying, it ensures hopefully that we stay competitive, assuming one, they stay healthy and two, they continue to perform. And 
that's not always a given, right? As much as these guys are talented and they're great people and they work hard, no one plans on having a bad year. No one plans on getting hurt, but it happens. They're dealing with human beings. So it's a model that we've employed. I think it's important for us, for the parameters that we have, for the market we have, for what we have to work with. Uh, it doesn't mean that if I was a general manager in some other city, I would feel the same way. But you know, I do believe everything you do should be team specific. And um, in my view of the way things are set up, this is what works for the Braves. And obviously the Braves have taken this and this is the strategy that they are employing in order to build a consistent winner. Now, Corey, I'm going to point this out. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on both all of what I just said and, of course, what Alex Anthopoulos talked about with there's nothing stopping other clubs from doing this. I mean, this is something that is out there and available, but I think that the Braves are kind of this perfect storm in terms of they've already got such a great roster locked up for the considerable future. They are a winner. It is a nice place to play, and not every team is able to sell all of their youth on that because some players, you know, they come up with clubs where you just kind of know that, hey, they may be there for five or six years before they get traded or leave them for agency, but it's just not the long-term thing. That just isn't the case with the Atlanta Braves. And I think it's it, it just kind of all speaks to the luxury that they have within the player development, right? Because you can look at the way that the Phillies were able to reach the World Series and, and Dave, Dombow, Dave Dombowski going out and, you know, signing Trey Turner to a, you know, a massive long-term extension that's well beyond anything that the Braves have, have handed out. They've had to go about it a different way because they didn't have that level of player development. And I mean, I... I know we, as Anthopoulos mentioned, you don't know which one of these deals are going to work out. There's obviously, you know, injuries, there's under, you know, there's underperformance. They had, you know, Mike Soroka get hurt, you know, obviously uh, Ronald Cunha Jr.'s had his injury as well. But you think about like the way that like the big red machine was built, right? Like so many yeah. of those guys were guys that they got young and they were able to develop and they were able to keep, of course, that big, you know, their grade eight, they were able to keep along for so long. I'm not saying that, that we're going to be looking back at this core of Braves players in that same vein, you know, 20 years from now, but there's the potential of that. And I think every other club would love to have that kind of, you know, stability as opposed to saying we got to go out you know, like Dombrowski in the, in the Phillies and say, okay, we've got to get Bryce Harper for this X amount of years and we have to overpay for it. We have to get, you know, Trey Turner for X amount of years and we have to pay this much for it. This is obviously the much more, you know, enticing way to do it because you can build around it as opposed to having to go out and be ultra aggressive just to have those pieces in play to stay in contention. Yeah, and we all know that contention looks different for different clubs, and we all know that those windows of contention, they can close before you really ever expect it to. But for the Braves, you know, this is a five-year run that they're on right now that looks very different in twenty going into 2023 than it did even back in 2018 because 2018 you were just coming out of that rebuild where you had really reloaded in young talent. Yes, you still had a couple of nice veterans that were in place. A lot of times the rebuild, you don't get to come out of that with a Freddie Freeman who's an MVP candidate who can kind of be the anchor of that club while other guys get themselves established at the big league level, whether that's Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzy Albies, you know, Mike Soroka, Max Freed, guys that were kind of coming through that rebuild, Dansby Swanson. A couple years later, you've obviously continued to supplement that with what this farm system was full of with the Austin Rileys. And then, you know, you go out and make trades, your plans change, your roster looks a little bit different. But 
all of this has been, by and large, homegrown, and the real impetus on being able to draft, develop, sign, or trade for players that you want to have around for a long time is a big part of how the Braves have constructed this, and uh, thus far, it has worked out pretty well. Now, Alex Anthopoulos also talked about these extensions and you know, really what the impetus is for this and uh, got into a little bit more, I think, of the, the, the a deeper dive into why exactly the Braves are doing this and how exactly they view this in terms of roster construction. Take a listen to this. I mean, obviously, people have been signing extensions for forever, right? But I think just when you look at, obviously, we did Acuna Albies early, and then really this past, you know, we did Matt when we acquired him. But I just think is maybe just as I've become more comfortable in Atlanta, I understand the marketplace, the division, everything else. You know, you have to be fluid in these jobs, right? And as, as things have evolved and the roster and, you know, as these guys before our eyes, we think they're going to be very good players. And again, there's no guarantees. And and certainly it's they still need to go out and perform and stay healthy. But I've said this before, too. I think it's important for a fan base as well. You know, I talk about it. You guys asked me this, I think, when we did the Harris extension. What do you worry about the most? And it's the sustainability piece. I see how well the organization is being run. I see from, you know, Derek Scheller and Mike Plant and obviously Terry McGurk overseeing all of us, what they have going on on, on the business side of the operation. And I feel like from a baseball operations standpoint, we have to pull our weight, meaning we have to put a good product out in the field every year, no matter what. And I think part of that is the sustainability piece. And you know, we don't want to be in a position where we're talking about having to trade guys away because they're getting close to free agency or that we can't sign them. So I'd say more this summer, obviously, we are more aggressive in getting guys signed earlier than I normally would have liked. I mean, ideally, you want to wait as long as you can, get as much information, have guys play more, know more about their health and so on. But you know, obviously there's a give and take to that. So, and I do think a lot of these guys do want to be here. And I think that that means something. I think it comes across to the fans. I think it comes across to everybody that they enjoy being here. And that that's a reflection of the staff from SNIT to the coaches, to the support staff, and obviously the fans as well. I've said this many times. It's a great atmosphere, no doubt about it. And the winning is a big part of it. So I just feel like, and I, I do think there's a part of me growing up a Montreal Expos fan, haven't seen a lot of players leave. I'm sure there's a little part of me that I know what it was like that our our good young players were getting traded away or that they couldn't keep them. So I think there's a small part of me that feels like from a fan base, it's important to know that you could buy a jersey and these guys are going to be here for a while. Now, I think that's way more than lip service in terms of being able to invest in a jersey if you're a fan. And I thought that the Montreal Expos was a really interesting note for him to throw in there at the end because I remember growing up watching the Braves in the 1990s and getting into that 1994 season and it looked like the Montreal Expos were going to be the team to beat in 94, and it also looked like the Montreal Expos were a young, up-and-coming club that could be a real force in the National League East for a, a while to come, as the case was. That club kind of got dismantled. Larry Walker was traded away, whether it was Ken Hill, John Wetland, all these other players, of course, were dealt at different times. I mean, Vlad Guerrero did come up, so you know they were able to replenish through the farm. But it was never viewed, I think, in the same way that that club in 94 captured a moment that could have been something special for Montreal. And who knows, after the next decade in which that club ended up leaving Montreal and becoming the Washington Nationals, I mean, I guess that's the worst-case scenario. I don't think the Braves had to worry about relocating if they weren't able to keep their club together. But I just thought it was kind of fascinating because if there is a great example in the last, what, 30 or so years of a club that you know really had all the makings of being something special and suffered from not being able to keep that whole team together and having to sell it off piece by piece by piece, painfully as it was, 
that that's something that the Braves are cognizant of and something that you know you don't have to worry about because Michael Harris can come up, win the Rookie of the Year, and you know he's going to be playing for the club for the rest of the decade. That's a really nice thing to look at, and maybe this is something that was a point for earlier, but even when you have the young superstars that do get the major superstar money, sometimes the club's not very good at building around them. I mean, look what happened with Nolan Arenado out in Colorado. There's just no guarantee that there's one right way to win this, that players are leaving money on the table, and that's going to you know, hurt them in the long term, and then the club's not going to follow through with its commitment. There is a lot, I think, to the partnership of what the Braves have done with both signing these extensions and also trying to do their very best to put together a winning club that these players want to play for in a city they want to play for in front of a fan base that they want to play for. I guess what I'm saying, long story short, is the Braves have an awful lot going for them right now when it comes to building a sustainable winner. And obviously there's a lot of luck involved in this, right? I mean, it's it's of about course. getting the right players in your system, the ones that, you know, that reach those levels that you're, you know, you're scouting and in, in development you know, teams show you that these guys are going to be capable. I mean, how many teams have we seen, you know, put a lot behind young players and they fall flat? I mean, they've obviously lucked out big time that these guys have come up, they've performed, and then they've wanted to stay there and they were able to lock them up. It's just it's it's a it's a really special situation and i you know i, I hate to, to kind of trump out that you know kind of in your feelings word there special but I, I think it's kind of hard to deny that that's a lot of what's gone into place here and these guys as he as anthopolis mentioned they want to play there they mm-hmm. want to be there and i think that all kind of goes into it yeah there's a strategy in place that let's get these guys and once we see you know what they're capable of let's lock them up offer them these opportunities and if they take them then we've got these guys you know for a long long time but i I think a, a lot of it is also, you know, this place that they want to play and they all want to do it together and they've come up and they've known nothing. I mean, if you're Austin Riley, you've known nothing but this group of guys coming up together, developing together, winning together. Why would you want to be anywhere else? Yeah, and that's the question I think all players kind of ask themselves. But then a lot of players, they never have that opportunity for the club to say, hey, how would you like to hang around? For the next seven years, let's go ahead and hammer out a contract that is able to make that happen and is able to take that pay scale and kind of move it forward into paying these players. Because understand, I mean, this is, again, not a free agent contract. So is Austin Riley worth more than the $555,000 or whatever it was that he was making during his 2021 season? Well, of course he was, but that's just the pay scale of the younger players. And I think that's something we talked about a lot during the lockout and all the competitive balance, you know, discussions that go on around the league is, well, the older players do get paid. The younger players, they kind of end up having some of their best years before they're able to get the opportunity to really get paid. And then you end up kind of paying for the past in a lot of different ways. That seems to have been kind of the paradigm of a lot of sports contracts. Let's just be honest. But in particular in baseball, based on the level of club control that you have, over players for the first six years. So it's an incredibly nuanced discussion, and I don't want to get lost in all the semantics and off into the weeds about every little thing about it, but it is the opportunity for these players and for the club to come up with an arrangement that allows them to get paid as far as the players are concerned a little bit before maybe they were scheduled to get paid, and then for the club to set up the opportunity to win and have the cost certainty that the Braves have gotten out of all of this as they attempt to put together a competitive club and continue to grow in payroll. Now, that's another discussion, Corey, that we've heard an awful lot about over the course of the last three to four months anyway, since those first comments started to circulate about a top five payroll for this club. 
We knew that was going to involve the luxury tax at some point, and that's something Alex Anthopoulos was also asked about as the Braves have finally stepped into what is a bit of uncharted territory for them, moving beyond that first luxury tax threshold. What does that mean going forward? Does it mean that they're done spending? What is the next move? Well, we're going to find out all of those things, but I thought Alex Anthopoulos' comments on all of this were quite interesting. Our viewpoint is we're more, I mean, from my standpoint, obviously the tax is a factor just in terms of the dollars, right? So my world, I look at it through the cash lens, right? So from a cash standpoint with everything that we've done and these trades and so on, we're kind of in the same place. Um, Even when you factor in we're over the tax, we're going to pay 20% on the overage. Um, But again, it's 20% on the overage. It's not a significant amount currently. Um, But we were never really focused on the tax specifically. So uh, that wasn't it's I have a payroll. I have a payroll amount cash wise that I work with. Um, That's where I'd say 99% of my time is spent. And if we go over the tax and that means we're spending a million dollars of tax or a million five in tax or two million in tax. I'll just include that in my math of my of my payroll going forward. So I know it's a big uh, it's a big thing maybe from a media standpoint, you know, but from our standpoint, we don't I mean, we pay attention to everything. But I'd say that the dollars going out the door in the current year, are what I pay attention to, and I just have to bake that in if we're spending a million dollars of tax or two million of tax and so on. So. Obviously, I'd said this before, we were always prepared to do it and the right deal. This was certainly the right deal. Um, And if the right deal presents itself again in the next week or month, uh, we'll be open to doing it again. I think that's a pretty interesting and very telling statement, and it pretty much lines up with everything that he was saying throughout the course of the winter. And I know the frustration that goes with, and I hate to keep bringing this up, maybe not being able to re-sign Dansby Swanson to a five- or six-year deal. What he got with the Cubs at seven years and $177 million, that didn't appear to be the right player and the right deal for what the Braves were looking at in terms of the overall player value that they saw, their valuation of Dansby. They weren't looking at $25.3, million, dollars a year, especially over the term of that contract and feeling like that was a fit for them. And even if they do want to go over the luxury th- threshold, there's something to be said for you know, the the continued pursuit of the construction of the roster and the payroll that makes the most sense to them, not just simply overpaying to get a deal done, to kind of put their money where their mouth is, that they will go over this luxury tax threshold or that they will, in fact, become a top five payroll. I don't think that all these things were mutually exclusive, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I thought it was really telling, too, that he mentioned that they just take whatever they were going to pay for the overage and just kind of work that into the cash value of what they were going to have for the payroll for the upcoming season anyway. So, you know, in the case of this year, you know, when you're going to have them be at you know, $239 million, which puts them, you know, $6 million over the luxury tax, they take that whatever that penalty would be and just work that into what their payroll would be for the year anyway. So they're not really approaching it from the end of, okay, we have penalties. They're just taking it from the total cash value of how they approach payroll for the upcoming season, which I thought was kind of an interesting take on it. Yeah, I definitely did too. So I think the, the question that we've asked, if you're, you know, just you and I, or if you're fans out there kind of looking at what the Braves are doing this winter, or maybe wondering why they're not doing more this winter, that question of can they spend more has been answered. And the answer to that is yes. Will they spend more? Well, I think the answer to that is probably when they're going to spend more, Corey. I think that's really the question that you have to ask. And it, it could come at any time, honestly, because that's kind of the precedent the Braves have set. And I think there's another extension candidate that people are looking out there in the form of Max Fried and wondering, you know, do you get to the point where, you know, you wonder whether or not you can re-sign a guy who, you know, has shown that he's, you know, one of the top flight starting pitchers in all of baseball, 
or are you going to get into a sticky situation like you've already seen happen with Freddie Freeman and Dansby Swanson? I think they're, that's something that's going to be, you know, playing itself out as well, but certainly there's the idea of in season acquisitions and how that's going to impact that payroll too. But I think this was an interesting, interesting move with the Murphy deal because people had waited to see if this team was going to tiptoe around that luxury tax, or if they were going to say, look, we've said that this doesn't matter. It doesn't impact our operating procedure. And I think this signing showed that it is not going to impact how they're going to operate as a club. Yeah. They were not going to let that change them into an avoidance of going over that particular threshold. And, And again, you know, you don't, get taxed on your entire payroll you get taxed on the overage so that's another important thing to think about it's not like all of a sudden you're getting hit with something that is such a far and away detriment to spending that you're not going to be enticed to go over it for the right player and for the right deal and I think that the Braves certainly did that in the case of the Murphy contract and you brought up something interesting that I brought up you know talking on 92.9 the game on Wednesday morning the Braves have also under Alex Anthopoulos kind of had this overall vision that you don't have to spend all of your assets in the winter to make your club the best that it can be. You want to do everything you can to bring a unit together in spring training. And of course, on opening day, moving forward, that's capable of going to battle and and winning on a given day and winning series and putting yourself in position to contend. But there's always been, I feel like, this little bit of, okay, we want to make sure that when we have to make our adjustment in season and when we need to supplement this club, that there's something out there to do that. And I think that over the last couple of years, we have seen the Braves like take on the Rice Iglesias contract, for example, in 2022. That was a pretty big get for the Braves in terms of the overall monetary value of a player that they were acquiring. We saw them also reinvent their entire outfield in 2021, which is something I honestly hope they never have to do again, and no club wants to be in the position of having to completely overhaul an entire position group in the course of the, in the middle of the season. Of course, that worked out pretty well for them in the end, but that is an outlier and not something that should be expected each and every year. But I bring all of those up to point out that when it comes time at the trade deadline to make the club better, Alex Anthopoulos has also done a pretty good job of supplementing that, and that's going to take resources as well. And I do think that's something to keep in the back of your mind if, in fact, there's not another big, brave spending move over the next six weeks leading to the start of spring training or before opening day. Yeah, and I mean, you're always going to have things that are going to change, right? I mean, it could be, it could be teams that thought they were going to contend and things start to fall apart and they start unloading pieces and you're in, an oppert- in a position where you can take on you know contracts from those clubs. It can be the Dallas Keuchel signing where you're able to yep. take a guy on in season and you're able to, you know, somebody you didn't anticipate was going to be in your plans on opening day. And all of a sudden you're able to to bring that guy into the fold. So I think the flexibility that they have and, and the understanding that, you know, this is not by far a finished product uh, in terms of what's on the field and what's on that final payroll. And outside of 2020, as you look over the last at least four years, going back to 2019, where you talked about the Dallas Keuchel signing, then the Braves went out, they traded for Shane Green, they traded for Mark Melanson. They took on a, a lot of money over the course of the season and, and it was in season money as opposed to just winter spending spree which is something that a lot of clubs you know they are looking to and they should be looking for ways to make themselves better in the long term and in the long run and get 162 games out of players I I get all that you know again the two things can exist simultaneously because I think your needs can change throughout the course of a season but if you are the person who is doing the planning doing the budgeting or at least beholden to working within some kind of budget then you have to figure out a, a, a way to maybe hold a little bit in reserve to make your club a little bit better in season. And I feel like Alex Anthopoulos has done a great job of doing that as part of his larger plan 
each and every season. Now, the Braves payroll and the Braves plan is going to be different than, say, the Mets payroll and the Mets plan. <laughs> We've seen a totally different offseason approach. The Braves have not been breaking the bank with free agent dollars that have been spent. The Mets have been doing exactly that. In fact, they may have bought some banks in order to just create an all-new you know, system of paying for the biggest payroll in the entire sport. And who's to argue with the results thus far? Because we don't know how it's going to play out over the course of a season, but we know they were able to identify some really great players to supplement their roster, to make up for some losses that they have suffered over the course of the offseason, to keep some of their players in-house and keep them from going other places. It's a different-looking thing, a, a different-looking um, approach to overall roster building. But again, both of them could and can be successful, and we're going to find out over the course of 2023 and beyond with some of the deals that have been signed. But the Mets, you know, their spending and their way of doing it, Corey, and as we've seen with clubs that have gone out and, you know, air quotes, won the winter, it does not guarantee that you're going to be the last team standing come the final week of October or that first week in November. Yeah, and we were obviously all talking about this Carlos Correa deal uh, for the Mets that hasn't even been finalized yet as these medical yeah, issues we'll continue to, to hold things up. But you can say, you know, you go out and win the winner, but we don't even really know what that means in terms of, of the Mets. But I will say the way that the Mets have spent, and, and certainly they're trying to get themselves to the point where they can, you know, be a little bit more like the Braves are in terms of having a farm system that supplements what they have uh, than that major league roster, you know, they're spending to basically get themselves to the point of feeling that they're a world series contender and then build those, uh, those younger pieces around that. But I mean, obviously we've never seen a team spend $800 million on free agents in one month. And obviously they are going all in on trying to deliver uh, a championship. That's been a long time in the making. And as much as we talked about Alex Anthopoulos understanding the past to present what he does in the future, we know Steve Cohen is a long suffering Mets fan is trying to do exactly that and deliver a championship. Yeah, he certainly is. And again, I think that spending in this sport, it's important to see maybe the precedent being set, even though this is uncharted territory. Because again, a year ago, we were sitting around a lockout where it felt like the, by and large, the, the 30 owners, maybe with Steve Cohen as the outlier, were trying to point out that maybe there are reasons why we shouldn't really be investing and spending all this. And it goes beyond just Steve Cohen spending over the course of this winter. The money is out there. We know that the revenues in the sport are out there, and we know that the on-field product is what people are paying to see. So I think it's important to show over the course of this offseason that out there in free agency, you know, these deals are out there. Clubs are interested in winning. Clubs are going to spend. I think it said more about needing to entice some of the bottom third of the league to start doing a little bit more spending than it is about trying to keep the top 10 teams in the league from doing too much spending. But that may be a subject for another podcast or another time. You brought up an interesting name in Carlos Correa, and we know this has been quite the saga. Two $300 million contracts in one offseason for one player is something I've never seen before. In fact, I've never even heard of anything like that before. Uh, the first one was with the Giants. That one fell through because of medicals and because of concerns about a previously fractured ankle or leg that Correa suffered eight years ago, Corey. Now it seems like that's a sticking point in the negotiations with the Mets, or at least in finalizing his contract with the New York Mets, which still may happen. There may just be some language that has to go in there, but clearly this has been a red flag for now two different teams. This Correa saga is, is something that, you know, if he does sign and ends up in New York, we may end up just not really thinking about this too much at all. But again, if you're a club that's putting $300 million into a player and you're worried about his long-term viability, this is a conversation that's going to have to happen, and both sides are going to have to be satisfied, it looks like, before somebody's ready to truly sign on the dotted line, even if they get dressed up and jump in the car to go to their own press conference. 
Yeah, and the reports are that Korea is not interested in opening back up any of the negotiations within this deal in terms of adding language that would cover the Mets if this pre-existing condition ends up costing him time on the field. I just I wonder if ultimately it just becomes let's throw a few million dollars more into that, and you are able, and then you're maybe a little bit more willing to take on whatever language needs to be added to the deal. But uh, look, I mean, it, it seems so weird because we didn't hear about any of this with the Twins, right? Like they no. they signed him. There was we didn't hear anything about it. Uh, it obviously only comes out with the Giants and now later with the Mets. I just it, it's it's crazy to me that you get to this point where, you know, we've we've gone through this whole process. These deals are agreed upon. And then you find out that much further down the line, because if you're the Giants, you had to then scramble and go out and, you know, get, and get Michael Conforto. If you're the Mets, what do you do if you can't agree to something with Carlos Correa? There's nobody out there that's going to change the complexity of this team the way that they felt like adding Correa was going to do. So, I, I mean, this really puts them, I think they're almost in a more dire situation with this than Correa is because Correa can go to 28 other clubs, assuming the Giants are out of this, and find another job. The Mets are not, they don't have any other fallback. Yeah, they don't. But then again, I, I kind of looked at this as, as one of those, I don't know that the Mets ever expected to sign Carlos Correa necessarily. Of course, I cannot speak for Steve Cohen and the, the level of spending that he's done. Clearly, he's setting a precedent that if he does decide that he wants a player or an asset to be added to this team, that he's going to go out there and find a way to get it done. I think that Correa made some comments in season from what I was reading about a hard slide that he had that had his leg feeling some kind of way, like a, a strange like vibration or something. Uh, that that he was feeling, but he didn't miss a lot of time, and he certainly wasn't on the injured list because of, of of chronic leg injuries over the course of his career as a big leaguer. So it, it's interesting that this has become such a sticking point. And yeah, the Twins did sign him to a big deal, and this did not come up. But what was the max of that Twins contract? It was three years, right? Really, it was a glorified one-year contract. If, if the way things played out, that he could opt out of that deal. I think that maybe one of the reasons why we look at this through a different lens for the Giants and now for the Mets is that at one year, you know, we say that there's no one, there's no bad one-year contract. The Twins weren't worried about it as much if they could get Correa to come in at 27 years old, whatever he was last year, and come in, have a big year, maybe be enticed to stick around in Minnesota for a couple of more years. They weren't guaranteeing him the next decade plus, and I think that might be the line of delineation between what the Twins did and maybe why they weren't as concerned about this and perhaps why the Giants and now the Mets are a little bit more concerned about this because you're talking about 10-plus years. Well, I will say that there's a report that the Twins did offer him 10 years at $285 million. Well, there so. You go. If you if you approach it from that end, maybe the Twins weren't even going to go to the links with the physical that the Giants and the Mets did because they already knew the product. So maybe if he had stayed in Minnesota, we never even would have known that this was any kind of an issue because they would have already you know been in line with whatever True. you know they had True. on the books on him. But certainly, I think the fact that we're talking about 13 years and 12 years does change the parameters of a little bit. But I think a lot of it has to do with just a new set of eyes being on him. Yeah, well, a lot of eyes have been on Carlos Correa's medicals, and clearly we're waiting for this all to play out. But as usually happens when you drop a podcast, count on some news happening within the first 24 to 48 hours. And I'm sure the <laughs> Mets would breathe a sigh of relief and Carlos Correa would breathe a sigh of relief if, in fact, they can get this deal done, signed, and delivered and finished as they look to open up 2023, not thinking about this kind of thing and not having it hanging over their heads. I'm fascinated to know if this deal does not work out what exactly Carlos Correa does. He has the biggest and best agent in the game that you can have in Scott Boris, who has been able to drum up a couple of $300-plus million offers. But I would just have to wonder, could you do it a third time? And at that point, 
Is that club not going to maybe see the same stuff and have the same series of questions? This is, again, some uncharted territory in free agency. I've just never really encountered anything quite like this, and I'm really wondering you know, if, in fact, this is going to work out with the Mets and we just never hear about it again, or if this is something that's just going to drag on and going to be hanging over Carlos Correa's head for the foreseeable future. Well, I think the A's are, are having their fingers crossed that if every team gets a look at them and it drops down by a year and about 20 to $30 million each time, they might end up getting oh, for, you you know, uh, getting it for a season for about $4 million. Well, I don't think that that's going to be the outcome of all of this, but you and I will be sitting along and watching to see if this Correa deal gets done. And we just happen to know, regardless of whether or not he ends up signed, sealed, and delivered for the New York Mets, that the Mets are a very good baseball team and they're going to be a very big rival for the Braves in 2023 and moving into the future. It looks like that the bank vault is open for business and Steve Cohen is happy to dole out those contracts and keep his players up there in flushing for as long as he possibly can. So, Corey, we'll continue to talk about this and all the hot stove stuff moving into 2023. It's been a great time all year long and I look forward to doing it next year as we count down to spring training. Yeah, man, can't wait. Weeks are ticking away. Well, that'll wrap things up on this episode of From the Diamond. As always, we appreciate you spending your time with us. It's been a great year in 2022, both here and on Battery Power. Make sure you're subscribed over there on the YouTube channel, and make sure you're subscribed to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. You can just search for the show, find it there, leave us a rating, a review. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to share it with a friend. We appreciate all of that. It helps the show grow, and we certainly love talking about Braves and baseball with you each and every week here on the show. Make sure you're following me on Twitter at Grant McCauley's where you can find me. You can find Corey at Corey J. McCartney, the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. I'm also on Instagram at Grant McCauley, the show at From the Diamond. And make sure you like the show on Facebook as well. Just search for From the Diamond and find everything else at FromTheDiamond.com. That'll put a wrap on 2022 for us here on the show. Again, for Corey, I'm Grant. Thank you so much for making us part of your baseball podcast regimen. And we look forward to seeing you in the new year. Here's to 2023. And we hope it's the most exciting year yet for the show and, of course, for the Atlanta Braves. So until the new year, so long, everyone.